So welcome back to the Wave Podcast, guys. Uh, today we have Mr. Ricarlo Handy, um, who is the creator of the Handy Foundation, and we're going to get more into you know how that got started and you know his whole backstory um, going going through that. Um, but essentially, the reason we invited Ricarlo on this podcast today was because of you know racism in America and all the different racial issues that Black and Brown people, uh, people of color, color face, not only in today's world but as well as in you know the film industry. Um, and especially with recent news with, you know, Nuri Martinez saying anti-black uh, things and having to resign and everything, we thought that this would be a great opportunity to bring someone into the podcast who knows about the film industry, been in, has been in the film industry for a while, and um, has some light on how he's helping people of color get into, you know, the film industry. So if you could just introduce yourself to everyone so, you know, they kind of have an idea of who you are, because you can obviously do it better than me. So I'm Ricardo Handy. Um I've been in the film and television business in some form or fashion for about 22 years. Mm-hmm. Maybe, yeah, yep, 20-some 20, 20 years. No, almost 30 years, actually. I'm lying because wow. I was 14. I'm about to be 44 next year. So, wow. Yeah. Um, so it will be 30 years next year from, like, the first time I was on set um, learning or producing or directing anything. Um, and I've, done, I've never done anything else. So, um you know, when it comes to what I'm up to today, I'm still producing. I do produce podcasts and television series. I'm just um, uh, a show called the Harlem Globe Harlem Globetrotters Play It Forward just premiered uh, two weeks ago on NBC. The more mm-hmm. you know, Saturday morning program. I have a podcast called Money Moves with iHeartRadio, and um, and then we do a lot of digital content, and you know, have partnerships with a lot of different folks. But on the on my nonprofit side with the Handy Foundation, we do a lot of training. And we have a lot of partnerships with, you know, everybody from Netflix to ITV and Fremantle. And so some of the studios that service, you know, networks like like CBS and, and NBC. Um, and so, you know, it, it was kind of like a perfect marriage because the 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 things that I've been doing my whole life, you know, kind of have um, uh, been kind of like a training ground for what I'm doing with the foundation. So how did, you know, the, the foundation get started? Because. You know, a lot of people have seen, you know, the front end of, you know, TV and how black and brown people have been continuously getting in the camera more and, you know, getting leading roles. And we're seeing gay LGBTQ plus people you know, get in the film industry. But a lot of people don't really think about behind the camera and like what goes on and how everything is edited, directed, all kinds of stuff. And one of the big ones that people really actually knew about was the Black Panther movie where they were like, oh, the directors and the writers and, and stuff yeah. like that. So tell us how, you know you kind of got started in this creating the Handy Foundation. Like, what made you create the Handy Foundation? Well, I don't think that there's one thing that I didn't really realize until a few years, until a couple years ago, and really mm-hmm. even more over the last year. You know, being someone that's always been working in the business, I've been kind of like a fish in water, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I understand how the business works. I know how you can navigate it. But Hollywood is a bit of a mystery to most people that don't work in the industry. Unlike you know, becoming a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer, you can pretty much go on Google, you can research the the degrees and classes and residencies you should get for those jobs. And it's it's a lot easier to understand what to do. Doesn't mean it's easy to do, right? Mm -hmm. No, everyone may know what it takes to become a surgeon, but doesn't mean everyone's prepared to do everything that it takes to become a surgeon or a lawyer, et cetera. Um, But with Hollywood, there are so many jobs that people don't even know about and and 
and so like we've all seen Oscars so white and a lot of the different movements that happen, but a lot of it really had to do with what we could see from Hollywood, which was who's directing, who's acting in it, what stories are being told. So a lot of the diversity movements in Hollywood have been focused on the storytellers and the actors, mm-hmm. right? Um, Would you say it's more surface level? Yeah, it's more surface level, but it's also more so what you can see, mm-hmm. right? Like we can see from the outside looking in how a company like Facebook or Google works, so we think, right? We see the public facing part of that company, but but we don't know all the details of what happens behind the scenes. We don't know all the job titles inside the company necessarily, right? And what those functions are, um, especially as they're doing R and D and they're developing things. They may have people doing things that we don't that they don't want anyone to know who they are because they're still figuring it out. And what's interesting is Hollywood has a, some parts like that, right? Where you're developing content, you're creating content. You know, when you sign up to be a production assistant or a, a producer on a reality show, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're you're working on Survivor, right? Yeah. Like, like you have to sign an NDA, right? Yeah. Right, like you can say you can say you're working on Survivor, but you can't say who's going to win next week, right? Yeah, (laughs) and um, and so you know, there's a little bit of that in Hollywood that people don't realize. And the other other piece to that is that there there's a lot of gatekeeping that's happened over the years with different behind the scenes positions. But the bottom line that I the thing that I that I know is that every every shoot you do, like every movie you might see you know, has a large crew, you know what I mean? Like the average film may have a, a like large budget, big budget film may have like 500 people uh, on the crew. That's not, not including the director, the writer, right. you know, the actors, those people that you know their names and you see on camera may account for like a dozen people in, yeah. a, in, a, in a project, right? And then there's still another 500 plus people behind the scenes. And a lot of those jobs are paying multiple six figures, right? Yeah. There's a lot of millionaires in Hollywood that do very well just doing color correction, just yeah. doing audio mixing, just doing editing, right? Or running a vendor that services one of the companies, right? It's right. a whole industry and it's one of the largest in the state of California, right? Which is one of the largest economies in the US, one of the largest economies, economies in the world, yeah. right? And so the bottom line of how the Henny Foundation started is I simply was looking for black editors for one of the vendors that was trying to diversify their personal staff but it became you know very viral because there was a lot of negative comments um because i do feel like some of the folks that have grown up in this industry like me but maybe you know come from a different background as me they you know a lot of them a lot of the white folks in that particular chat like really felt like oh, it wasn't fair that they were only looking for black people for this particular opportunity. And they had a lot of negative comments that went viral, got retweeted by other folks, and became a Los Angeles Times article. Um, blew said, up in the yeah, news and, and blew everything. up in the news and everything. But it put me in a position <clears throat> because every, all these microphones end up in your face, with, you know, all these outlets wanting to know what you think. And they just want you know to understand what happened and tell the story of the day. Um, but, but the story was bigger than that to me because what I realized was I think we all think there's someone out there working on a problem, right? Like there's the Red Cross, they got it. Or, you know, this other organization, yeah, like they got it. There, there's a, lot of, there's a yeah. lot of nonprofits that exist to solve problems in the world. And what I realized was this this particular problem, there was no nonprofit that was really solving it specifically 
for below the line jobs and post-production, which in unscripted television is where all the jobs and all the money is, mm. right? So almost 75% of unscripted money, right, on unscripted shows, that's nonfiction, documentaries, reality TV, is all spent in post-production, Yeah. right? Most of our television shows are unscripted because scripted is more expensive. So I was able to really dive into the numbers. You know, we got it, we compiled this list of black editors and quickly realized that even if every single reality show wanted one black editor, we there weren't enough with experience or that had credits to even get that many people hired. Like, I think the, the, the list of shows we did last year, it's like 1,700 shows, mm-hmm. right, across I don't know how many networks there are today, but it's a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And our list of black editors, and this is like from film to unscripted to like all the viral activity. I mean, I'm sure there's people out there that are editing professionally that we didn't have on our list, yeah. but we had a pretty comprehensive list. And it was only like 400 people, Yeah. right? And the union, the union people were like less than half of that. And there's 8,000 members in the union, which makes basically means that we're less than 1%. Yeah, and I think we should clarify because a lot of people who don't understand post-production think like maybe there's oh like an editor or two on shows, but like some shows have like five, six, seven editors. Yeah, and then they have a ton of assistant editors and a bunch of other you know things. So when you say like 400 people, I mean that's like a really small number that you know people need to kind of grasp. Yeah, I'll give you one stat that a lot of people realize like America's Got Talent or The Voice, for instance. The Voice is a good example. Mm -hmm. Twenty editors, fifteen assistants. Right, that's just on one show. And there's a lot of shows, reality shows. Most most reality shows are going to have anywhere from four to eight editors, yeah, and at least a few assistants. And so, did you see, you know, um, after this happened with you, and you know, there was this racial outcry, and then you started the Handy Foundation. Did you see a lot of, you know, other um, like networks and uh, studios that were like wanting to help and wanted to get involved and you know, wanted to, you know, diversify, you know, their offices to show that, you know, they care about diversity in America and in their companies. I'm going to say this. I was really able to see who was genuinely wanting to. There's three, there's three parts to this. There, there is a lot. Everybody, I think, has good intentions. Mm -hmm. Not everybody knows how to do it, though. Not everybody knows what, how to, to get to the results that they want to get. And they also don't want to disrupt their for-profit business, especially yeah. when it's publicly traded. They can't afford to do that. So what, I, what I've what i seen is a lot of slow movement from the very largest companies mm-hmm. because there's a lot of red tape when, when you have a huge company. And not only there's a lot of red tape, but what people don't realize about the industry is NBC doesn't hire all the editors for America's Got Talent. Mm-hmm. as a company called Fremantle. Right. Um, And so what we did first was go to the production companies because the production companies are the ones that really hire everyone. Yeah. And the production companies were getting a lot of pressure from the networks to fix this problem. Right. But it's not like the networks were just like broke down and gave everyone extra resources. Right. To fix this problem. They just was like, all right, well, it's a problem. It's in the public. Fix it on your own kind of thing. And so it was very fragmented in the beginning. There's a lot of people getting a lot of information from a lot of different people. And unfortunately, with advocacy organizations, most advocacy organizations just kind of, you know, that's what they do. They advocate. They kind of, you know, give you you the bullhorn activity. This is what you need to do. 
but they all, again aren't all all these organizations aren't always giving you all the resources they may yeah. give you a list but what we did that was different is that we are like you know we noticed immediately a lot of these folks were just exchanging the same people they're taking people from a reality show putting them on a scripted show taking people from scripted shows putting them on a big movie right and then you have all these shows that are like scrambling to diversify too that the at the um you know lower budget levels and they're not able to find people because all their people have now moved up and so um that was a lot of what was happening in 2020 a lot of these lists gave people access to people but a lot of people got a lot of calls so what we did was we trained people we trained new people to give them skills and give them access where they've never been accessed before because yeah. prior to our foundation if you were someone that didn't know anyone in the business you really didn't have a way to get started, right? And even even further than that, if you're a production assistant working on a show, you may not have a way to get to the next level, right? And that's where we come in. We actually train people and prepare them for the next level, and we actually have partnerships where we have jobs waiting for them once they once they finish the program. And so I think that's the key difference of what we brought to the table that wasn't existing before. And so, how many you know people have have gone through you know the Handy Foundation so far? Would you say you know it's a few hundred? You know, you're it's a hundred and hundred and twenty two, and eighty nine of them have been placed on jobs. And the only the people that haven't been placed just finished the program in the last two weeks. Oh wow! And so, how often do you do you know these um, training sessions? And like, do you just offer assistant editing? Is there you know other things so that we, you offer? Yeah, we started with assisting editing as the first program. But in January, we're rolling out five others. Um, and we already rolled out one, excuse me. So we rolled out the virtual production program, which is where we teach Unreal Engine, which is what you use to build like gaming gaming engine like Fortnite. And you see like that, that in like Star Wars and stuff. Yeah, yeah. but you also yeah. see that they use that to build the sets and the worlds in a lot of the, in a lot of the movies, yeah. you know? Because uh, you know they don't, there's no Death Star that really exists somewhere, right? That's all that's all digitally created. <laughs> yeah. Right? Um, so that kind of stuff. And then um, we did assistant editing, virtual production program. Um, we're gonna do a DIT program with a digital imaging technician. Uh, we're gonna do a um, um, we're doing a hair and makeup program launching the application this month. We're doing a post uh, a post. Uh, production coordinator and supervisor um, program and then lastly we're doing um, an audio mixing program as well well that's good so uh, you basically diversifying and trying to expand and you know uh, give more people opportunities uh, not just for assistant editing jobs um, overall like what is your main goal in the sense of um, where you want to see the handy foundation like let's say five years like what's your your top of the line goal well, okay, so I, I do this kind of uh, talk about the history of our business, and there's a new innovation every year, right? Mm -hmm. There's a new innovation in the technology or in the processes that we use. Like even the cameras you have here are all recording digitally, right? There's no videotape, right? Yeah. So unfortunately, in education, we haven't really had many innovations. There's no TV school. Most people go to film school and learn how to be one of three jobs, right? Director, writer, producer. And no one's really teaching in these other, all these other hundreds of jobs that exist, right? And those jobs are being created and invented every day. So to answer your question, um, you know, we want to create an annualized um, program that all the educators can participate in and get updated on what's going on in the industry so that they're actually teaching what the kids need to know to get jobs. Because right now, 
you know, everyone's our our whole educational society is based on this model of going to school for 12 years, then going to bachelor's for four years and discovering a major out of that. Well, most of those majors don't actually translate translate to us to a job that requires a skill. And we have so many people now, especially, you know, with the student debt crisis that's been going on is so many people just go to school to get a degree rather than going to school to get a degree that they're, they're, they're interested actually, in yeah. and yeah. use. You well, know? see, I grew up in Germany, right? And, and, and here's the thing. When your college system is not based on building it on the backs of, the, of, of your citizens and putting them in debt so that your institutions can survive, right? Because mm-hmm. they're for-profit institutions. When you create institutions that are, um, you know, free like free like college used to be free when my mom was young right like Mm -hmm. community college should still be free for everybody it should be like high school but it's not in germany though it you don't go to a four-year bachelor program if you don't have a job that you're training for that requires it right so sometimes if you're going to it for a job that requires this baseline education to then get a master's or phd to then do that job Mm -hmm. um, then that makes sense but if you're going to be a mechanic right that's not frowned upon you know what i mean it's a trade school you go to trade school you learn that trade you go run the mechanic shop right. and so there's you know a lot of a lot of, something happened to our educational system where where it now feels like every single kid in america expected is expected to become a doctor yeah. when it's like well you still need the nurse's assistant you still need the receptionist you still need the people that are going to fix the equipment that the doctor right. works on right you need somebody that's going to run the teleprompter or the um you know the court reporter you know all these jobs that don't require degrees yeah but require specific skills right so i think that we need to start to broaden out our educational system to address all the jobs in the industry it doesn't mean that you can't skill up or level up from any of those jobs but it doesn't mean that every 18 year old has to go to a four year college yeah and so i mean the biggest thing the biggest takeaway from that is you know so many people need to understand that like the film industry, like you said, is somewhere where people can make six figures, people can make, you know, seven figures, all kinds of crazy money, and you don't have to have a degree. I mean Well, and it's it here's what it is. Some industries are certificate based industries, right? You need this certificate to prove that you can do this job. Yeah. And some industries are competency based, meaning you can actually continue to level up in that business the more competent you become about the technology. Now, here's the catch. The technology changes so fast that this is the one one of the few industries you could jump in today and learn something like Unreal Engine and outpace everybody in two years because everybody's learning Unreal Engine for film right now. Yeah. Even, the, even the most seasoned professionals are only like a year in to learning that software, right? So if you're young and you're just now learning it, this is exactly, if you read a book called Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. I've heard about it. it's recommended reading for everybody that I would say he specifically talks about um, Steve Jobs and uh, Bill Gates right and those folks they were all born between 1957 and 1960 now why is that important because by the time they were like 19 20 21 years old that's when the personal computer came out so if you were already working on these big supercomputers in these big rooms and that was like you were locked in, it's going to be very hard for you to like pivot to these new personal computer things because you don't know if that's going to work out. Right? Yeah. Right. However, 
if you if you you're young, you can pivot to this new technology, a personal computer, and you can start your own personal computer company. Maybe you call it Apple, right? Maybe you call it Microsoft. And then 10, 15 years later, now you're the leader in the whole industry. Yeah. Right. And that's the opportunity when there's innovations that happen in your industry. And that's the opportunity right now in Hollywood. Yeah. And so basically, what are some of the like platforms besides, you know, um, Unreal Engine that like are taught in the industry? What are things that, you know, if someone who's aspiring, like watching this, to yeah. get into the industry and wants to join the Handy Foundation, like what are some things they have to then know? And, and Well, I would just tell you the jobs where the most opportunities are right now are in anybody that wants to get into production accounting, um, understanding the, the budgeting software, movie magic, right? understanding um, how to build cost reports and do payroll and stuff like that. Like it seems like not maybe exciting, but you know, if you control the money and you understand how the money moves in the industry, then you actually have an insight into every aspect of the business. Yeah. Two, visual effects, right? So Unreal Engine is just one software, but really understanding Adobe, um, you know, After Effects, understanding um, Mocha, and there's, there's hundreds of softwares where you can do um, visual, uh, visual effects, effects mm -hmm. but they all kind of just like editing softwares kind of work off the same premises, right? Yeah. Um, C++ is uh, is uh, what I was told by Pixar is like, hey, we, we would love to have interns that we can teach, you know, kind of our process and our animation process. But like the basic understanding of coding in C++ is like a starting point, right? If you don't know that information, it might not be, uh, it may be really difficult for you to get in there and really actually you know, it's like not knowing the rules to basketball, but you're trying to play in the game. Right. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, doesn't mean you're going to be Michael Jordan, but you at least got to know that's the, the free throw line. That's the, the three-point line. You know, this is the baseline. This is the hoop. You know, so you got to know that. And that's, that's really what they say. The basis of coding is important to know, too. You guys were talking about uh, Unreal Engine and uh, particularly how Disney uses volume. Do you, uh, where do you see that going in the future? And where do you think the next sort of big... Uh, innovation in the movie industry will be that's like sort of similar to that. Well, everything everything is going more and more virtual, mm -hmm. right? So anything that people can do through AI and anything that people can do um, without actually building a big building, right? Or having a big, like everything's going to be a little bit smaller, a little bit more compact and a little bit easier to manage. You'll still have your big blockbuster features, right? right. But I'm going to tell you something that ha that's happening in the business. I know a few circumstances where the director that they want to direct this film doesn't know anything about animation or doesn't know anything about visual effects, right? This is an interesting paradigm because you want to hire these people with this experience and this names, right. but they also don't know, don't understand the technology and how to maximize it, right? Like a crazy story, a guy that, have you ever seen this film Rango? Yeah. So the guy that directed Rango didn't really do animation. So what his process was, was, he shot the whole film like a feature film. Like right. he shot it like a real live action film and then had the animators animate it. Now, I don't know the whole backstory as to why that was the agreement for that, but I do know that it happened. Um, and I don't think that that's a sustainable model, right? Like I think that you're going to start to see people that understand and know the technology being able to step into these leadership roles and direct the film and write the film and things like that. So I do think I do think that I think that the days of like the leadership of a production not really being familiar with the technology 
I think that's going to become a less and a less of thing, right? Be- that we'll see. Um, so that's one thing. Two, I do think that there is going to be a lot more immersive media, AR, more experiential media. But I don't think that, I think that the, the I think it's a whole category unto itself. Mm-hmm. I do think that the technology can be used. Like I've, I know people that have used Unreal Engine to do to design practical spaces, right? So like right. now you don't have to rent a house. You can just build a house in Unreal and then shoot it and no one will know the difference, right? And then it's now it's cheaper because a lot of these, you know, sets, you can just, they're already pre-built. So those are the kind of things I think you're going to see. Um, and I think our, our, our palette for like watching things that are more digital looking, more animated looking will increase to where, you know, um, to where they will be more accepting. Right. Definitely. Because I mean, the thing about unreal engine is it's becoming more and more real. Like yeah. it's crazy how, like, you know, when I was a kid playing video games, like you could tell like, Oh, it's a video game. And, like now it's getting to the point where it's like, you, there's no way you could tell, especially on video. Like, for real. That's, like Madden is a good example how good the graphics have gotten on Madden and 2K. Like a lot of times when I walk in a room and somebody's playing Madden or 2K, I got to like double double take. Like, is this a real game or is it a video right. game? I'm like, okay, the, that's uh, who. Yeah. In the Batman, the the sunset, the sunrise scene where he was talking to Catwoman, I think that whole background was virtual. And they really? like took, I think they took pictures of it. They, I think they used the volume technology for that. So like you can't really tell. Yeah, especially now with Star Wars. Like, I mean, I watched Man. The Mandalorian. I couldn't even tell that it was, you know, shot on a massive digital screen. Like, and it's insane. Yeah. And, like, that's the way the everything's you, going. Have you guys seen, you should look this up, too. You can probably find it on YouTube. But if you look at, have you seen Winning Time with Magic Johnson? No, yeah. I haven't. So, so, that was one of the dopest things I've seen for a virtual, because, because basically... They're shooting this stadium in the 70s, right? One, they can't really recreate it. Two, to do a scene like that back in the day, you would have to get, maybe you wouldn't fill up the whole stadium, but you would fill up like, you know, a thousand extras or 500 extras at least on one side. So when you shoot the shot, you could, so it was like, it used to be this massive undertaking. And so you got to think they're recreating Showtime Lakers basketball, you know, but then there's a video online of them shooting scenes in like basically a small set that's a gym with like maybe 50 to 100 extras like on the sidelines rooting and everything behind them was green screen, Mm -hmm. right? And so literally you have like the guy playing Magic Johnson coming down the court like it's a big game and it looks very small and like a little high school gym with the green screen. But then when you populate the green screen with this whole stadium it's like instantly it turns into like 10,000 20 like 50,000 people watching yeah. you know it's pretty insane wow. how did you how do you feel about uh bigger productions like marvel and black panther and shang chi using primarily black or uh asian crew members or they do it from casting uh cast crew and i think most of the time all the way down to writing and sometimes editors i'd have to check on that part how do you yeah i think i think anyone that's doing a film movie or tv show about any culture and they're not checking in with the people from that culture it's very is a very arrogant move mm-hmm. right i would not dare tell someone's story that i have no relationship to 
It's just about being responsible. I'll give you an example. Um, and it, I would consider that responsible filmmaking, mm-hmm. right? Like, and I've always done that. If I'm telling stories about the music industry or about Atlanta, right? I get people from that city or from that culture to contribute either as producers or consultants or right. things like that. And also editors and staff and talent. You want people that are familiar with the culture, right? Like you wouldn't, you don't want someone editing a Spanish language show that doesn't speak Spanish. Yeah. Right. You don't want someone that is so so i think because this is a an art form an expression of culture a lot of these stories you got to have the people from the culture involved but what what often happens though is you don't have a ryan klugler at the helm that that actually maybe has done projects utilizing you know all black staff he's you know he's from oakland i'm from oakland it's a different vibe you know in certain cities some people may come from a different environment where they haven't been around a lot of black people even as a black person and so they may not feel like they know people, you know what I mean? Or they don't have those relationships. Um, but I do think you have to make an effort, right? Right. Um, and so, and so what I what I would encourage anyone that gets the opportunity to show, run, direct, et cetera, like you got to be involved in every department. A lot of times we come from like I, like let's say I come from writing. I'm a writer, and I don't know um, anything about post production. I don't know anything about visual effects. So I'm gonna let the studio handle that part or someone else handle that part and then what happens is that department is filled with people that may not understand the culture and so you do have to take more time to to seek out those people in mm-hmm. every department um and so I'm, i applaud the programs that do that right and you and we still got a long way to go like as many black people might have worked on black panther for example you know the editor um for example just has a, a lot of a long track record with doing Marvel stuff, right? And right. he happened to be a white guy, did a great job. But it wasn't it wasn't like um, it wasn't like just because majority you know cast and maybe a lot of the crew were black it doesn't mean that the whole crew is black or the whole crew is Asian or Latino, right? Like it just means that they are part of the process too. Okay. Yeah, and that's really what you're, you know, shooting for is not mm-hmm. like to get like take over the industry in the sense of pushing yeah, we just people out. All work together. Yeah, just mm-hmm. you know, a- allowing for you know more diversity essentially. Exactly. Um, because you know, so many people now, especially you know, with certain responses, especially like some of the things that you got was like they felt that you know it was racist, like reverse racism. They're pushing people out of the industry, all kinds of stuff like that. When in reality, it's like so many jobs are being created. Well, not only that though, a lot of people don't realize like the reason why we started the assistant editor program is because with everyone working remotely and all the, and and our amount of content we're making in our industry increasing by 400%. I mean, I think a good 25 to 30% of the assistant editors that we knew Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we know at the time we're all double or triple dipping because they could because they're working from home but there also was that big of a need that like for instance you could be doing a big network show right I know for a fact some big network shows where it was like they would rather take an experienced person part time double dipping than a very, than a new person with no training mm-hmm. right because then you don't want you know it's like your baby you don't want it to get messed up yeah and so that's why our training program was a big hit because those people that were like, man, I'm relying on, I don't really have a lot of good choices, right? It's like sometimes in political campaigns when you're like, man, it really no good choices, right? You know there's more yeah. people out there that could do the job, but they just didn't have the millions of dollars or the support to run. Yeah, You know what I mean? And so now you got these two terrible choices of, of people 
I'm not going to mention no particular race, <laughs> right? But 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 you know that that happens to us all the time, and that's what happens in Hollywood every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is that you just have only a few choices of people because not that many people know how to do the job. Yeah, would would you say that you know politicians, especially in the state of California, have like drawn light on some of these issues and and companies and are trying to you know make an effort and stuff to you know. In, you know what I found? You know what I realized? Unfortunately, at every company, even the ones that have been great partners, and even in my own, any of you know, my own organization, it really feels like everyone kind of has the thing they really want to do, the thing they're really excited about, the thing they're going to volunteer. I'm going to lead that project. Um, but it's very rare that you find that like everybody's on the same page. Everyone's giving equal effort. So like, I think the same thing with politics, right? Like, you know, oftentimes what I also find that happens is that everyone has like this, that thing they want to do, like the thing they're super passionate about yeah. and they can't wait to get into position to do that. And so, um, unfortunately a lot of politicians, you know, they have an agenda from that dates way before they got elected, right? They have a mission, a goal and, uh, you know, hopefully that goal lines up with what the city needs, but sometimes it doesn't, you know, yeah. or the government needs. And I will tell you one other thing. Unfortunately, it's a lot to know to be a politician, right? There's a lot of things to educate yourself on. So that's one of the things that we're doing next is really helping to educate everyone on our industry and how it works so that they can, you know, make choices that are informed. Exactly. So who are some of these people that, you know, you've you've talked to some of these companies, some of these, you know, celebrities that, you know, you've started to work with? Um, to, you know, get this out there that, you know, you're trying to increase diversity in Hollywood and you're trying to, you know, make an effort to make a positive change in society. Well, the good news is I think we made we made an impact and we made we've definitely increased um, the, the level of diversity in, in Local 700, which is the Editors Guild. I mean, I would say nearly 30 to 40 percent of our trainees are either in the union or on the roster. Yeah. Um, and. And, and that number is going to continue to increase. So at the end of the day, um, you know, we have increased diversity, um, but we have a long way to go. And some of our partners that have been working with us on this for the last two years include like Lionsgate, you know, Apple, um, all the star shows um, have, have, have taken on, you know, one or more of our apprentices. Um even the Lionsgate feature films. We just played someone on the Hunger Games prequel. Matter of fact, Courtney, who was in your cohort, did yeah. you know that? No, I didn't. I, I yeah, haven't uh, talked to her in a while. Yeah, she just got that gig. Uh, so I think she started this Monday. Um, and then, you know, ITV, and the production company-wise, you know, it's been ITV and, and Fremantle. So, like, ITV does, like, Queer Eye for Straight Guy for Netflix, right? And, and Fremantle does, like, you know, shows like... Uh, um, like uh, what is it called? Not Price is Right, but the other one. Come on down. Is that Price? No, with, with the guy uh, Steve Harvey. We no, talking about? no, the guy from maybe it is Price is Right. I think it is. Yeah, yeah. Where so he grabs people from yeah, the yeah, for the audience. Yeah. yeah, so Price is Right. You know, um, a lot of BT shows for A. Smith. You know, nailed it and Top Chef with 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 um, with Magical Elves. Bruna Murray, which do, they do the challenge in the real world and ton of shows over there, yeah. 44 Blue. So a lot of the production companies that maybe you haven't heard of, but you've seen their logo on the end of the TV shows, you know, we, we've been working with them. So, you know, we're upwards of like, you know, 25 production partners and a few studios. That's good. That's real good. <laughs> 
how is uh, Sunwise Media going? So, okay. So, Sunwise Media is, you know, my my production company. Right. Um, started it in, really in 2018, for real, to do syndication was my first plan. Um, and we did syndicate some programs. Um, one we did was uh, Unsolved History, Life of a King, which was about a, a little known story. Um, a lot of people didn't know that Martin Luther King Jr. had a brother. Mm-hmm. You know his brother, A.D. King? No. Not I know, familiar? I know, I, I know he had a brother. I don't, I'm not familiar with yeah, him. Yeah, so, so a lot of people don't realize like he was kind of quiet, but he was also a minister. He was one of the ministers in Birmingham, which is why they... Um, you know they were able to come there and move so easily through the city because he had the, his brother had the connections, you know, with all the other ministers. Also, um, he was found dead in his pool 15 months after Martin Luther King uh, died. They said he drowned in his own pool uh, that he swam in every morning. Hmm. So he's probably killed too. Just like yeah, just yeah. Like, okay. I didn't got to go into it, but that's what the uh, hour-long special was about, like really looking at his life and his death. But at the end of the day. You know, I want to create programming that tells our stories with Sunwise Media. You know, what I realize is, you know, a lot of what we think is shaped by who's telling the stories. And unfortunately, we haven't been in the leadership positions to really green light and control our own narratives. And so now I have to find myself constantly, you know, teaching things to my sons directly because there really isn't any media out there that helps them discover their stories on their own. Right. Um, and so, so our company is really dedicated to, you know, sharing stories that are important for us, sharing information that's important for us, um, and not necessarily just black folks, but just BIPOC folks in general, folks that are underserved, you know, who in America don't get, you know, we get very little time to really tell. Like we have to have, you know, a lot more opportunities to tell the, the vastness of our stories. Yeah, I was uh, um, the speaking on what you were just talking about. I was uh, people telling their own stories or telling bringing other stories back to life or uh, to the light. There was a I went to a World War II museum and I saw uh, I read one of the in, in the exhibition. One of the things that I had read was something on a soldier named Medicine Crow. You guys know who that is? Mm-mm. He was a Native American soldier who had he was just he he was brutal and he did a lot and. Um, it goes into his whole life, not the whole exhibit, but that one portion of the exhibit went into like his whole life and how he had gone to school, got his master's degree and all that stuff. And he had lived all the way up until the Obama era and how he had gotten honored. And there was also another thing about what was it? Uh, I can't remember the name of the unit, but there was a uh, unit of Japanese men who were in internment camps. And rather than being in internment camps, they volunteered to go out into war and got shipped off to Europe. And they, uh, also killed a lot of people obviously they had to go to europe because you can't having a japanese u.s japanese uh unit, unit in japan and, and there's Okinawa there's, and, there's yeah. segregation and all kinds of well, stuff no, well yeah you don't want to send the japanese to, to fight the japanese, japanese yeah. basically you, they would everyone would like no one would know what was up so they it was just one of those things where it was like yeah. i've never knew about that and i'm in my 20s now and that was never taught in schools so to your would add on to what you were saying well, what's, earlier. Well, what's crazy is though is that if you think about it, the further we go in the world, there's a lot more history to know. Right? right. This is new history being created every day, so you you really can't understand everything. But I do think this is important. 
I think everyone should have context for how they got where they are today. 100%. And unfortunately, like, we're not even doing that well, right? Like, there, there, there's a whole battle right now against even people understanding the, the transatlantic slave trade in schools, right? Yeah, because there's so many districts that are trying to exclude it from teaching entirely. Right. Yeah. And because now, of what would be the motivation theories. for that, right? The motivation for that is... Um, well, I'm sure there's a lot of individual motivations for it. And yeah. people may tell themselves stories about it. But look, if my son is going to be in a public school, he needs to have information about where he comes from and how he got there. Yeah. And I grew up in Germany, like I said before. Um, learning about the cultures and the history of the culture is a staple in learning, in learning, right? Like they learn languages at a young age, right? Learn, and it's about learning about the people in your community, mm. the people that you interact with. So if you live in a community that's predominantly black, Latino, and European, right? You should be learning about those places. Yeah. And you should be learning about how those people got to that community. Yeah, definitely. I do think that the reason why, you know, that's such a big issue nowadays is um, critical race theory has been like a big yeah, issue. Yeah, critical and, race theory has many um, different like, And I think a lot of people don't understand what critical race theory is and they're using it as a way to kind of like push um the the past of, of america's wrongdoings out of the the history books um even i have a friend who i work with um on survivor and he was like yeah like my little cousin didn't know slavery existed like when we told him about it he thought we were joking you know something like that so yeah it's that thing of you know nowadays i know that there's so many people on different political sides that, you know, are trying to downplay things and make it seem like, you know, issues aren't as bad as they are. Um, but, you know, there's still a long way to go. There's still racism in America. There's still inequality. And, you know, it's good to see someone is, you know, stepping up and trying to, you know, make a change in a specific industry to, you mm -hmm. know, help not like, obviously, you're not trying to push people out. You're just trying to increase the diversity in the industry and help people. Um, and I wish that we saw that in so many different areas across America, because, you know, we see so many like multi-millionaires now when it comes to like the black um, community and a lot of them don't really do anything for the black community. They make hundreds of millions of dollars, football players, basketball players. Um, and they, they complain about the issues, but they don't do anything. Yeah. Um, and I, I forgot what's, there's a basketball player. He played for, um, I think he played for the bulls and he went viral because he was talking about the same thing where, you know, like we need to take responsibility mm -hmm. and stop complaining about things. And, you know, Actually make a change yeah, yeah make an actual change yeah. in our communities <laughs> I, I think I think there's a there's a couple of pieces to that right like you can't be going cleaning up somebody else's house if your house ain't clean yeah right? like you wanna you wanna start everything starts at home but then also I do think too a lot of people don't know where to put their resources like if you have millions of dollars right and you wanna help you know, there's going to be a lot of people with their hands out There'll be a lot of people saying, I can I can help you do this, or help you do that. And, you know, um, you know, you, you got to be careful. Right. And so I think there's there's some folks that do get a little shut down and they just I'm going to just do my own thing, kind of pick my own thing. And what I realized, though, is that people people tend to help out in industries that they're familiar with. Like right. I'm familiar with the industry that I'm in. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's going to be industries that I that I don't that I don't I can't really contribute to, right? Because I don't really know a lot about that. Um, and so, what I do think we have to do is start in our industry, start in our community, start in our homes, 
And, you know, a lot of times you'll look around, for example, let's say that you're at your house and there's some, you know, stuff spilled on the floor, right? Well, if you live alone, ain't nobody else going to pick that up but you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Right? And let's say you maybe you live with a, with your wife or your girlfriend or maybe you got a roommate. Like, well, now it's between the two of you. But at some point, somebody got to decide, okay, I'm going to just knock this out because right. it needs to get done. And that's really what, what has to happen with all of these different, you know, issues, right? Like someone has to step up and say, okay, guys, I'm going to solve this problem. And do you think, you know, with the recent Black Lives Matter um, organization controversies um, that, you know, so many people finally got to the table and were ready to help the black community? And with all the recent, you know, things going on with the Black Lives Matter organization, do you think that they've done more harm than good when it comes to? Well, I don't. I, here's what I think. And, and this is important, and this is probably the most important thing. I'm not, I don't come from the nonprofit space, right? But what I did do was I surrounded myself with people that had a lot of experience, and I actually dedicated the time to it. Like, I actually didn't make any money in 2020, or 2021 specifically, because I was 100% focused on building this nonprofit, but also making sure I educated myself on what we needed to do, right? Fortunately, because I'm a reality TV producer, I have a lot of contacts. Like the one thing thing about being a reality TV producer and developing shows, I've developed shows about everything you could imagine, right? So, so in my Rolodex, I have a long, you know, a long list of people I can just call up and say, "Hey, I don't understand this. Do you know about this?" You know, um, and so I had a lot of people I could call. I think a lot of times we we know there's a problem, we know that there's a solution, and we maybe even know how to get started on building that solution. Or we may, like with Black Lives Matter, you know, get ourselves in a position where we can be kind of the, you know, the the conduit into the into the community to a problem for, for a lot of people. But that doesn't always mean that we are in the best position to run that organization or to build sustainability around the organization or even have a plan. Like, and I think that some of these things take time to develop um, but unfortunately in our community, we don't have that institutional generational knowledge, right? Like, I'm going to tell you something that's, that people don't really realize. Like, so in 1865, right, Emancipation Proclamation gets signed. Mm -hmm. A few years later, black folks start to get to know that they're free, right? Um, and the word gets around. There's a lot of newspaper articles. That's where you start to get words like gospel music and family reunion and things like that because you know one this is the music that that we're singing right and mm. so it's it, we're doing these celebrations we're bringing our families back together i know for my family for instance it took almost 40 years to get all of our family members back together that we even knew about right through the slave trade and all that but during that time from 1865 to roughly 1920 Black people filed for more patents than they have in the last 100 years, right? So what does that what does that fact tell you? Well, it tells you that at, in 1865, we um, Lincoln created the Freedmen's Bank. You had Doug, Frederick Douglass. You know, we're depositing money into the bank. We formed P, we we moved to PG County, which is still one of the wealthiest black areas for wealthiest areas for black folks. We felt free. We were becoming politicians. We were getting the government. We were voting. We were hustling, right? man. Right. We junk. were we were just one generation out of slavery. We was crushing it. We had Black Wall Street. 
you know, we're building hotels and things like that. And so what happened then is the same thing that's happening now, right? Black folks are starting to prosper and institutionally it didn't work for the system, right? The system started to rage against this black wealth, this black joy, this black commerce, right? So what happens? Our black wall she got yeah, burned yeah, down. Are they burned yeah. down our, our this that's like literally that'd be like that'd be like us going to burn down Manhattan thirty years after it started and saying, you know, we don't want you to build a city here. Yeah. Right. We don't want you to build wealth here. Right. But then from nineteen twenty to nineteen sixty, we start to get all these Jim Crow laws, laws that actually prevented us from participating in commerce, right? Black folks working um, under the table doing house cleaning or whatever, saving money for 20 years to then eventually afford to buy a house, bringing that cash to the bank. And the bank saying, well, if you don't have receipts for all this, how do I know you didn't steal it? And taking their money. Yeah. Right? These are the common stories that we have. So we, you know, we have a whole nation against us for a year from my whole great, from our grandmother's generation. And so what's, what people don't really realize is that, you know, yes, the, 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 Civil Rights Act was passed in the 60s, right? And the 57 and 60s and, and Housing Rights Act and all those things. But, it but they were but they changed. were litigated. They were litigated all the way to the 70s. Yeah. Right? They were litigated all the way to the Supreme Court to the 70s. Cultural and, change. And so it took a while for a lot of that to be reinforced enforced right. nationwide. And the reason why the Supreme Court finally decided that actually um, this one particular lawsuit that got claimed all the way to the top was like, yes, you can choose what customers, you know, you who you want to serve, but you cannot exclude an entire group of people, right? Mm -hmm. And the reason why, here's the reason why, is the Supreme Court decision explained that that actually was denying the government of, the, of their right to collect taxes from those consumers because you're forcing those consumers to go into like an underground, you know, kind of black market, Situation where we get the the and green. It was book all from. about money for yeah. them. It yeah, wasn't was, really that was that was why the decision got made. It wasn't because it was the right thing to do or anything like that. It was like, oh no, well we can't collect commerce and taxes and sales tax off of these folks if they're not able to do business with you, right? Yeah. And so you, we just want to you just want to understand that I was born in the seventies, right? I'm forty something years old, right? I'm forty three years old, so. Basically, up until my lifetime, we weren't even able to really fully move around the city freely. I mean, country freely like that. Yeah. Would you definitely say that, you know, it's it's beginning to improve and it's definitely it's come a long, a long way from, you know, what it was in the past? Well, it goes back to it goes back to what we were talking about before. As much as there are individuals in this world that are committed to diversity and inclusion and accessibility and love for everyone, there are people that are committed to the opposite. Yeah. You know, they they want to make sure that their business and their industry and their car, what they've what they're, you know, think about this. If you're born into a family where your where your father, your grandfather, your great grandfather, you know, have built carved out of an industry for themselves, they're the leader in something, right? Mm -hmm. And you feel like in your generation is chipping is getting chipped away. Right, you're gonna be conservative about it, even though you may be outpacing everyone in your community. You just feel you still feel like you're losing mm -hmm. because you have less than your grandfather, your great grandfather right. did. And 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 really, 
that's really what the big battle, right? Like conservative people want to keep everything the same and people that are innovating is like, no, you just got to create new stuff. You got to innovate new products. One, one of the greatest examples of that is Motorola, right? Mm-hmm. Motorola was a leader in communications for 75 years. Where are they now? Well, Google would bart them within seven years of existing. Yeah. Right? Because they outpaced them. It wasn't that Motorola couldn't create Google. They didn't try to. They wanted to keep the right. industry that they had been dominating the way the way it was. And the industry and the technology outpaced where they were. Blockbuster, same thing. Right? Netflix. Blockbuster, yeah. you know, Netflix came to Blockbuster and pitched it to them. But they didn't jump on it because innovation happens. And so that's what we need to do. We need to jump on these new innovations and, and, and outpace the competition. Yeah. I just wanted to bring it back because I know you kind of, you partially answered it, but just my whole thing is, you know, the, the Black Lives Matter organization, do you think that if it was split up between, you know, different organizations and if more organizations got some light that we, we would, you know, excel and see more because, you know, now so many people because of the scandals, because of the million dollar, multi-million dollar homes bought, the people getting arrested for fraud, all kinds of stuff. I feel like it's well. I can tell you. I can tell you. I can tell you. The movement definitely got hurt by that, and I don't know um, enough about the organization to really like comment deeply on internally what they should do, or what mm. they should have done, or where they went wrong. I do know this: that we have to stop giving control of our organizations um, to folks that don't really have the knowledge or well, not only to have the knowledge but really have the best, the, intentions. The best intentions yeah. yeah a lot of times I'm, and I'm I, even within my own family right we are quick to call a lawyer and pay a lawyer for something we don't understand versus doing the research ourselves mm-hmm. right and i have this conversation with my own family like well no like the thing you're paying the lawyer for like you can actually find out yourself this is public information right yeah. um and and so those are little things like that we really have to do and um, and then when we build our organizations, we need to build them from a sustainable model, from a mission-based model. I will tell you this, from outside looking in, it just seems like Black Lives Matter really caught fire in a way that they weren't even prepared for. Like, they, you know, some, some, some companies and organizations or movements just grow in a way that you can't even control it. And you're trying to like come up with ideas while the train is moving, while, you know, you're building the train tracks while the train is moving, I think that um, at the end of the day, what we have to do is try to get control of our narratives more. Like, I don't really, I don't really know um, where they went wrong exactly, but I do know that what's next is to say, hey, here's here's the impact that we're having, right? And any nonprofit organization should be able to tell anybody from a drop of a dime, like, here's our impact, here's how we're changing the world. And a lot of people, a lot of organizations don't don't have that, right? Like they're their mission is more advocacy. And so like, it's it's a little less tangible mm-hmm. to say what they've done, right? Like, cause I see Black Lives Matter everywhere and I don't know whether they've the organization paid yeah. for it or if, if the, you know, like for instance, you have these streets like Black Lives Matter streets and things like that. Like on Hollywood Boulevard. Hollywood Boulevard, like in DC. And that's great. But I think that what I think, what I love to see them promote more is the programming and the statistics of what they've actually accomplished. Yeah. 
that's the same for us because I mean we've we've had so many conversations about that. Is yeah. like obviously we support the movement and like you know it's the next step in you know the civil rights movement and you know inclusion and everything. But like we just saw like from the Black Lives Matter movement, it's like if you had eighty million dollars, I mean you could have done so much for the communities that you wanted to help and all kinds of stuff. So. That's why I just wanted to, you know, from because you have a nonprofit, so I just wanted to know what your thoughts yeah, it's, were. Yeah, you know what? Here, here's the thing about nonprofits um, and any business you you can you can treat it right for the right purpose, or you could you know treat it wrong and try to pull the wool over people's eyes. So I I just don't know where Black Lives Matters falls in that in that spectrum. But just just like I said, from my from my point of view. It was folks that had a great idea, a great mission, and a great message. But also, I do think that a lot of personal beliefs get involved. And when you do when you do a five hundred one c three, you do have to be clear about who you're serving, um, what the purpose you're serving them for, and you got to come you know come through on those missions and show financially that you're actually right. serving those people so i think that the back office stuff may have got mismanaged but then also you know it's all a pr machine right like a yeah. lot of there's a lot of great organizations doing a lot of great work that never get promoted yeah oh yeah and so and so what happens with something like black lives matter because it's such in the in the spotlight it's going to be under the microscope so every mistake is going to be 10 times more promoted than every good deed yeah definitely What's the advice you'd give to someone to where, where when they're offering a pitch to someone to where it wouldn't be just a normal pitch that you've heard a bunch of times that sounds like something new to them as opposed to something that's actually new and innovative for like a TV show or a movie or anything like that? Yeah, I think we've all had this experience where we have an idea. Like, man, this would be a great idea. Mm-hmm. Now, the first thing you should do, especially today, is do what? Research. Research it. But what do we normally do? We, we Google it, right? right. Yeah. yeah. I would say about 50% of the ideas I have on a daily basis that I Google, they're already out there. Yeah. And so that's why, that's why I think reading is fundamental, right? Like Mm -hmm. research is fundamental to anything you want to do. Right. Um, And so that's the first thing I would say, because a lot of times the idea you have has been out there. There's a, there's a term that agents have, they call it a mop or MOP, right? most often pitched right there's a ton of shows like everybody will be like yo we should do a show like this it's like shark tank with a twist or it's like survivor but it's a twist or it's like real world but it's a twist right yeah or it's like housewives but we but we sisters you know (laughs) (laughs) so that's the first thing you got to gut check is like not every idea is even pitchable so ideas are great you want to, I would I, I tell everybody if you get ideas just start writing them down and, and then you know once you start writing them down sometimes you realize oh this ain't that good of an idea yeah. second thing is who you're pitching to is important you got to research also who you're pitching to because a lot of times people will pitch shows to networks to studios and to producers that either a don't have the ability capability or interest in doing that kind of show right like you don't go pitch Harry Potter to TLC yeah right makes sense or hgtv right hgtv don't do those kind of shows right but then you also don't go to the cooking channel and pitch a cooking show um about that 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 they already have five versions of on that channel right so you want to understand 
through your research, what the need, what the innovation is, what is the problem you're solving, right? So like every network has a problem. Every YouTube channel has a problem. Now here's the thing. Once you get past that, the next step is to realize, okay, I think I have a good idea. I think there's a few outlets, places, or people, an audience that, that would really vibe with this idea. And I don't think it's out there. I'm pretty sure it's not out there. So it's like, okay, or is, I really feel confident this is super different, right? But then you got to figure out medium, right? Because every story or every concept, you know, would be play out different in different mediums. Is this a podcast? Is this a documentary? Is this a reality show? Is this a movie, right? Is this a short film? Is this an educational video? Is this a YouTube channel, right? Or a social media channel? There's a lot of different ways to distribute your content, short form, long form, right? And um, and so you really want to understand what medium you're developing it for and why, right? Like why this medium? And again, that comes down to research. What what kinds of things can you point to that are similar or, you know, are you maybe just going to be innovative? And the last thing is there are categories of things that you cannot produce independently. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So you can produce an independent YouTube series. You cannot produce an independent ABC series, right? Because ABC has a quality control. They have a whole process. They have a whole system, and they're a publicly traded company. Right? They are. They're owned by Disney. Right? There's a lot of steps to get a show onto ABC. Right? Um, maybe there's a little less hurdles to get a show on like. I don't know, like Paramount a smaller or, network. Oh, no, nah, because a lot of honestly, all these all these networks are owned by Viacom. Yeah, uh, you know, Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers. Warner. Disney, so, like, you got yeah. NBC, which is NBC Universal, right? Right. You got ABC is owned by Disney. You got CBS is owned by Viacom. You got Fox, Disney, Disney, right? ESPN Plus or ESPN. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so, uh, so a lot of these. So then you have the cable players, right? But then there are a lot of them are owned by, you know, Discovery Plus or, or Discovery Warner, right? Yeah. Um, and you have a lot of them owned by Viacom. So, again, like, you know, there's not a lot of independent opportunity to reach everyone, every market with a television series. So that's a super collaborative process. Independent filmmaking is different, right? You can go out, scrape together your money, make a small independent film, film festivals as an outlet, you know, hope you hope you get a win. But but generally, I would say independent films are really a proving ground to prove your creative juices, prove right. your vision. And sometimes you may get an independent hit that really translates to, you know, but so you, it's worth taking a shot. So that's your question, right? Like, are you doing an independent project or are you doing something that requires a lot of people to buy in? And would you say like now, uh, nowadays, because of like streaming and all the platforms that are coming out, would you say that, even though it is still hard to do by yourself, but would you say now it's opened up a lot of, you know, avenues and um, things for, you know, all kinds of people to, you know, get their work seen now? Yeah. Yeah. So, so here's the deal. The world is very noisy. So get your work seen is a very loose term, right? Mm -hmm. You can make something today, put it on your social media channel and people will see it. There's no barrier to entry for you creating something and showing people. However, what you're really asking is, 
if I do something independently, can I just can I just put it on Netflix and everybody, the whole world can get access to it? Yeah. Right. And the answer is yes. And right. Right. Because. You guys remember the whole Monique situation, right? Monique, Monique had sued Netflix because they, they were trying not not offering her a bunch of money. Um, you know, they weren't offering this. You don't remember this? Y'all might y'all just wasn't y'all I, a little younger. So y'all wasn't really on it yet. But, but I'm just giving you an example. A lot of people don't understand hold on, uh, the difference between licensing content and producing original content. Oh yeah, yeah the big difference. So so this is the this is the key to what you're asking. So essentially, if you produce something on your own and you've done it tip to tail, you've shot it, edited, produced it how the licensing business works. So if same thing with Warner Brothers, right? If Warner Brothers shoots, edits, produces something completely in the can with no partners, with no agreements, they got to distribute that thing themselves, right? They got to figure out the distribution for it. And then if they want to sell it to television, it's usually a percentage like of the box office is how you can set your rates, right? But it's going to be a very small percentage, right? For example, when I was at Bounce TV, we would net we would uh, license um, uh, game shows from the Game Show Network. Now they might spend you know a hundred grand, let's say, on an episode, but we're gonna get license we're gonna license it for like a thousand, right? Because they're gonna license it out to two hundred different countries for like you know a thousand to five thousand dollars per episode, right? Mm-hmm. For a small window. You ever what you ever see Die Hard? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Diehards on TV like every day somewhere it seems like right yeah. yeah right especially during Christmas time right well they're not charging TNT or TBS or UPN or whatever wherever it's airing you know um, ten million dollars to air that movie on TV no it's a very small number but they only have a very small window and that's it's almost like a rental versus a purchase right like mm-hmm. if you're gonna buy a house in LA it's gonna cost you a million dollars. But if you're gonna rent one for a week, you might find a nice home for like 200 bucks a day or 300 bucks a day, right? And that's what the difference between licensing and original production is. So to get an original production, you need to be in partnership with a big studio that's gonna lay out the money or you bring it in some independent money, you guys are partnering, and there's a deal that's papered on the ownership or on your payment. And most of these companies are just getting paid to produce programming and the network or studio owns it. Yeah. So just, so on the flip side of that, if you produce something independently that you own, then you're gonna you know, basically rent it out to a bunch of different networks, a bunch of different countries, and you can rent it out forever and make a shit, you know, make a lot of money. Right. Yeah. But but um but it takes time. Like you're not gonna be able to you know, if you rent a million dollar house, you're not gonna make a million dollars every time you rent it. Yeah, definitely. And so what what projects are you know you working on? Are you working on any like major movies, TV shows, podcasts, anything currently that you can talk about without violating any NDAs? Well no, I mean I think the the main thing I would share is, you know, just tune into the Harlem Globetrotters play it forward on NBC every Saturday, the more you know block, either ten or eleven AM, depending on your market. Um, and it's also on Peacock. So you have Peacock app, you can watch it on there too. Um, so we're only two episodes into that. It's gonna be on every um, every week this coming year. Um, and then in addition to that, you know, still have the Money Moves podcast uh, powered by Greenwood on 
on iHeartRadio. Um, and I have a few other things in the in the hopper that ain't that aren't out yet, you know. So, um, but just stay tapped in with my social media at Sunwise Media or at Ricarlo at R I K A R L O everywhere and at the Handy Foundation. And so, with and the excuse ha- me, at Handy Foundation. And so, with the Handy Foundation, um, what's like the website? So, because you know, there's plenty of people that are probably watching that are, you know like yeah. I want to get into the film industry. How yeah. do they? What's the process of them getting into the the Handy Foundation yeah. and all that stuff? Well, I mean, we're creating more programs now because our last program, we had like so many applicants we had to turn away. You know, we only had 12 spots. We had 450 people apply. And most of them, you know, um, could have could have succeeded in the program given the opportunity. But we had to, you know, weed it down because we only can train so many people to actually then help them get a job and things like that after. Um, and so you definitely should go to the website if you have any interest in what we're doing to any foundation. It's um, handyfoundation.org, um, and you can go to uh, join the join um, at the top. You can become a member um, and donate, or you can just join the database because we end up getting requests for every job title in every market. And so what we'll do is we'll search our database and we'll share um, those folks, but also the people in our database will get notified of all the applications coming out, all the events, um, and coming in, December and January, we'll have a bunch of new programs starting. Um, some of our applications actually will be opening as soon as October 24th for our DIT program, which is a digital imaging technician, and our hair and makeup program, the Glam Squad training. I was listening to the uh, Making Money making money Moves. My, uh, money Moves or Money Making? Money Making Conversations. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was yeah. a podcast I did a while ago. Yeah. yeah with- Were you ever, ever able to get the Domino Terminate, ter- Tournament up and running? Oh, yeah. So it's funny. So, yeah, UDL is a league uh, and out of Vegas that I think is a dope concept. Um, but it's one of those things that the, the guy that's producing it, the guy that owns it, you know, he wants to keep it independent and he wants mm-hmm. to figure out. And it's an event based business. That's the same thing with the Harlem Globetrotters, right? They're an event based company that hasn't been on TV for 50 years. But but we've just we figured out a way to turn their event base company into a, a television show as well. And I think that's what we're working on with the UDL. So it's still in progress. But uh, but yeah, the UDL is a, is a thing that that, uh, that exists. So it's not something that we made just for a TV show. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just, we're just trying to part, we just partnered with them to, to pitch it. Okay, cool. Thank you again, uh, Ricardo, for, you know, sitting down with us and, you know, giving us an insight into, you know, the film industry and, you know, the, the racial inequalities and all the things that you're trying to do to, you know, help black and brown people, you know, get into this industry. Um, but if you guys are listening on, you know, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, you know, follow us for, you know, more uh, podcasts coming up. And, you know, if you're, on, if you're on YouTube, watch this on TikTok, Instagram, whatever, you know, follow us, subscribe, start a war in the comments, and we'll see you guys next time.